Dotnet Rocks episode 883 with guest Jez Humble. Recorded live Wednesday, June 12th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, thank you very much. We're back at NBC.NET Rocks. Richard Campbell and Carl Franklin. I'm Carl. That's Richard. Howdy. How are you? I'm good. This is uh, amazing. I always love coming here. We're at the Oslo Spectrum. And this year in particular, they have about 1,800 people. It's really packed. And they serve, they have all these different stations for food. And they're changing out the food constantly. I just had the Mexican sausage, which we're a little far away from Mexico. It makes me nervous. And it wasn't all that spicy. You know, if you think of Mexican sausage, you want chorizo or something that's got a little spice to it. Yeah, well, you know, we're in Norway. But you know, the Norwegians love their hot dogs, huh? Yes, they do. All right, enough chit-chat. Time for Better Know Framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? A neck ache from bopping to that song. <laughs> all right, here we go. Uh, an oldie but a goodie. Yeah. Uh, so if you're doing any calm interop. Which means you're in hell. Yeah, so that means you're probably in a Windows app. When you're definitely in a Windows app. You're probably maybe in a Windows Forms app, maybe in a WPF app. And you may have some object that exists in unmanaged world. You know, accessing Skype would be a good uh, example. Yeah, if that interface is still working, I'm wondering what Microsoft's going to do with that. I'd like a .NET one, please. Yeah, please. So if you have an unmanaged API or something like that and you're calling and you want to uh, get rid of that, you know, with the dispose method and all of that stuff, well, it turns out when you just destroy a com callable wrapper, just the object that, uh, the managed object that wraps the com object, you don't get rid of it. You have to call a release com object, and that's in system interrupt services marshal. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash release com obj, that brings you to uh, system.runtime.interruptservices.marshal.release.com.object. And believe it or not, that is what you have to call to get rid of the com object on the other side of the wall. This really is old school, although that is framework 4.5? Yeah, oh, you, yeah. Well, it's been in there since framework 1.0. Right, of course, because we've always been interrupting com. It's not going away. No, it's not. And, you know, we talk about Windows Forms is sort of making a comeback. So I figure... We might as well just go back in time and rewind. Well, that's that story we got from uh, Rocky Laka, who said he got stuck on a, a project he hadn't been on, that was WinForms-based, and he had forgotten how productive those WinForm designers actually are. And also the fact that uh, what did Kathleen Dollar or Kate Gregory said, it's in the safe zone. It's not going to change because they're not updating it. It's not dead. It's done. It's done. It's safe. So to wrap up, no pun intended, that's thank you. System.runtime.interopservices.marshal.release.com.object. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 877, and that's the one we did with Kathleen Dollard talking about .NET 4.5 other than async, because that's what everybody talks about in .NET 4.5, while we were at DevTeach. 
not all that long ago. And this comment comes from Dustin Metzgar, who says, I wanted to thank you and to Kathleen for talking about ETW. That's the event tracing for Windows. Uh, the ETW improvements were, quite rightly so, overshadowed by the async await features, but I'm glad to see ETW get some love. I agree that the tooling is not quite there, but I want to point out a good tool that I use almost every day called ServicePerf. That's S-V-C-P-E-R-F. And that's at svcperf.codeplex.com. A quick perusal of ServicePerf's documentation. You'll see how powerful it is. Also notice that it's based on a project called TX. And that's at tx.codeplex.com, which is essentially applying reactive extensions to your ETW event streams, which is... Ooh, lovely. And this is what we were talking about with Kathleen. There's too many events. You have to be careful about how much you're sucking down here. Kathleen also mentioned that there are many events that you get free in .NET. Among those, I would like to point out the tracing available for WCF and WF. ETW events can contain activity ID and related activity ID fields, which are GUIDs, and those allow you to correlate events. For instance, you can trace an individual WCF request from start to finish, even as it crosses machine boundaries, because those GUIDs go from machine to machine. Uh, your code can also emit ETW events and use the activity ID from WCF, which is in the message or thread local storage, and allow you to identify the exact request and what happened during its processing. It's also possible to record ETL files from each of the machines that you're interested in and use TX slash service perf to combine them into one stream that you can write C-sharp queries against to mine information. Cool. So thanks again to Kathleen, Carl, and Richard for a great discussion on ETW and another helpful podcast. And that comes from Dustin Metzger. Hey, Dustin, thanks for your great email uh, and totally relevant to the conversation we're about to have talking sort of in the DevOps world about instrumentation and continuous delivery. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you can write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. So that's iPhone, Android, Windows Phone 8, and Windows 8. Uh, written by the fine guys at Diatom Enterprises. You can write comments there. They all play in the same place, and I hope you will. We'll send a dot at rock bug to you. Hey, should we talk about the tablet show? I just was walking uh, up to get some water, and a guy says, hey, I've been listening to Dotnet Rocks for a long time. I said, what about the tablet show? He goes, hmm? What's the tablet show? Well, the tablet show is Dotnet Rocks that Richard and I do, but the topic is always about new device form factors, you know, iOS, Android, from, from a .NET perspective, Windows Phone, Windows Mobile, Windows 8, and, of course, Web and JavaScript and all the things that go in there. So if you haven't checked it out, it's at thetabletshow.com. Also, should we give a plug for uh, Dev Intersection? For sure. Dev Intersection is coming up October 27th to 30th. We'll be there. Las Vegas. Uh, at the MGM Grand, and we're focusing on all things around the Microsoft space. But there's also angle brackets running in parallel there as well, and that's all open web topics. Scott Hanselman's hosting that. Yeah, he's going to be running that, and I understand Douglas Crockford will be keynoting. So it's going to be a good time at the MGM Grand, uh, uh, devintersection.com. And if you sign up with, uh, tell them you heard about it on .NET Rocks, you can get, uh, what is it, $50 off? Yep, 50 bucks. All right. So there you go. Enough chit-chat. Again, before I introduce Jazz Humble, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer topics authored by MVPs and uh, industry experts releasing 12 to 15 new courses every month and offering a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their library. Topics include iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. 
And with that, let us introduce Jez Humble. Jez is a principal at ThoughtWorks Studios and co-author of the Jolt Award-winning Continuous Delivery, published in Martin Fowler's Signature Series from Addison Wesley. Welcome, Jez. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. What do you think of NDC? Well, it's my first time here, and uh, it's pretty staggering. I mean, I I literally wore myself out walking around to try and find, you know, the, the places, and it's all kind of dark and stylish and it's Norwegian. It's rock star-ish, isn't it? It kind of is, actually. Yeah. It's a bit unsettling, but fabulous. Have you been on one of the stages yet? Because you're not giving a session until later today, right? No, I'm, I'm on later today. So I, I was hanging up at the kind of, they have this area where you can just see projected all the talks that are going on right now and you have like a headset. and you Yeah, can, we call that the ADD room. Per, which is perfect for yeah. me. Watch all the sessions at the same time to switch the audio from one to the next. It's super. It's amazing. The stages themselves, because this is that we're actually in a stadium, right? So all the stadium seating, the stages are hanging on cables in front of a block of seats. Wow. So for you as a presenter and me as a presenter, there is this moment when you walk onto a floating stage to do your presentation with everybody sitting on seats that are actually mounted on the ground. And try being a 300-pound man walking on that thing, and the earth moves under your feet, and you're like, whoa, hey! It's bouncy. It's like being on a trampoline again, right? Yes, just Super. with more exciting consequences. <laughs> so what are you talking about here? So I am doing a couple of talks on the theme of kind of continuous delivery and DevOps, one about architecture and another one about how to actually adopt this stuff at your company. So when you're talking about continuous delivery, what does that really mean? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Yeah. What, 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 what it really means is uh, it's not a new idea. It's the idea that real artists ship, that actually um, you don't get any value from what you're doing until it's in the hands of customers and they're actually seeing sure. it. And then the second order effect of that is when you do that, that has an effect on your architecture, on your process, on your code, uh, and on the way you think about what it means to be a developer or a tester or uh, an architect or any of these other traditional roles. So how do you relate continuous delivery to, say, continuous integration? Because it seems like we have tools for continuous integration. Yes. But what's the difference between the two? So continuous integration is the, the developer practice, I suppose, at the, mm -hmm. which is the, the foundational part of continuous delivery, which is that um, we should all be checking into Trunk. Uh, right. So there's a whole bunch of new tools, you know, the GitHub, the Gits and the Mercurials and, uh, of the world, which are, which make it very easy to work on feature branches. And people think that because it's easy to work on feature branches, we should work on feature branches. Right. And uh, I'm here to tell you that that's not true. Uh, <laughs> that actually, uh, that that's a very dangerous thing. What tends to happen is developers like working on feature branches because then they can sit on their feature branch and write some code. And, and, and when they're done with their code, they can get their story points and uh, and they're, right. they're happy. And And that's actually useless because something that's working on a feature branch is not something that's delivering value to your customers right. well and just because you've shipped a well just because you built made a new build doesn't mean that we're going to ship it right so you make a build you check it out you have you know you test it you do all that stuff doesn't mean that it's actually in the customer's hand right especially if that build came off a feature branch rather than off off trunk um so step one is okay well actually the work that you're doing is useless until it's actually integrated right uh, and it, it actually works with the work of all the other people on your team who are so maybe you go off, on, off on a fork for two weeks right and you're like oh i'm done with my feature yeah, but then, now you're in the hell of integration right and 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 the more people you have on your team and the more the longer you leave it the the, the more hideous that particular circle of hell is that right. you're in you get 
three or four groups of people on different forks. And I think Dante wrote about that, sir. Nice. So, so I hear. Yeah. Here we are in the four forks of hell. There's <laughs> <laughs> a dog with five heads, not, not three. Right. And, you know, and developers like that. The, the reason that developers like branches is because they don't have to talk to the other developers. You right. Know? Okay. Version control is primarily a communication mechanism. Continuous mm-hmm. integration forces you to communicate all the time. The whole reason people become developers is so they don't have to talk to other people. <laughs> so, you know, continuous integration... Continuous ruins integration. the best part of being a exactly. programmer. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's really awkward, right? You know, and then, and then managers... Awesome. Managers don't like it either because, you know, the managers want to give people their story points. And now when we're integrating all the time, you know, it takes longer to get from A to B because we have to integrate all the time. And the, the manager's like, well, this is slowing down our velocity. And the rate at which I can give people story points and make them happy is reducing. And, and that's very bad. But of course, you know, what, we, what you eliminate by doing this is the integration phase of the project. At where, the end. Right. Where it's like, oh, we'll add a buffer for that. And it's going to be about a week, we think. And then it's a month yeah. uh, or maybe two months. <laughs> but it's basically delaying the hard part. Right. And, and so the, the key heuristic in, in continuous delivery that we talk about in the book is if it hurts, do it more often and bring the pain forward. Nice. If integration hurts, do it all the time. If testing hurts, do it all the time. If releasing hurts, do it all the time. You know, we talk about the parallels between programming and music and therein is, you know, or sports or working out or anything. If it doesn't hurt, you know, if practicing doesn't hurt, you're not getting better. If working out doesn't hurt, you're not getting stronger. Absolutely. And it's the same principle here. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is one of the things in lean, you know, there's all these things in lean like Kanban or whatever. And the point is to make it hurt a bit because that's how you expose the problems, the right. things that you need to address. You know, it's, it's not about creating pain. It's not about making people miserable. It's about exposing the problems that we need to fix. So if we are always on trunk and we're running in a continuously integrated environment, so that means every time we check code in, it's going into the build that's going to be deployed integration sort of comes first then when i guess i got to build my code very differently yeah i mean you so you're doing it a lot more often for a start yeah but i'm also thinking that i can't just start throwing ui features into something before it's visible that's an excellent point because if you're going to deploy all the time I mean, so the problem comes when you integrate all the time and you deploy all the time so if right. you're not deploying all the time that's fine you can do that stuff but then you still order. effectively have a broken build just because you integrated something if you can't deploy it does it really exist that, that's an excellent point i think you know we what we strive for with continuous delivery is that it should always be releasable right so you're right you know if you've got something and it's a build and there's some kind of honky ui element that's just sitting there doing nothing mm-hmm. that's not releasable yeah so you're right so uh, Part of it is working out how to do incremental development, which is, you know, don't do the UI elements till the end. Create the service layer first, and you're writing service layer stuff, and it's tested. So we're not saying leave off the testing till later. No, write the service layer, have tests that run against that, but then don't connect that up to the UI till the end. Mm -hmm. That's the last bit you do is connecting the UI elements, you know. And that that becomes tricky when you have lots of richness in the UI layer, and, and, you know. I could also see you just building whole other screens and things that are not not normally accessible. Right, absolutely. And then you don't add the the links through to those screens until... Until, until you're ready to actually release that. So that, exactly. So these are all the kind of patterns and tricks, tricks and tips that you have to know in order to be able to do this. They're the kind of patterns of continuous, uh, delivery off, off of trunk. Uh, the other trick that people use is feature toggles, which is, you know, actually dynamically at runtime switching on and off UI elements. Um, so, so is that something that operators control? Like who controls that? Right. So operators would control it. I mean, feature toggles are one of these things that actually serve m- many very useful purposes. Mm-hmm. One is hiding functionality on trunk so that you can deploy off trunk, but not necessarily release things. And this is a really important distinction between deployment and release. Also very good for, you know, new users of your software. You might want to hide the more complex features and options just to not overwhelm them. 
Right, that's a, that's an excellent use of feature toggles, which is something that I know they've they've been doing in Office and other other stuff that Microsoft have been putting out. Um, the other thing is, you know, if you're if you're doing a software as a service thing, a web-based system, being able to turn off features that are computationally expensive when there's very high lows, mm-hmm. uh, being able to turn off features that are problematic as an alternative to rolling back, and then uh, the other thing is just uh, so the guy who's uh, release manager of Facebook, a guy called Chuck Rossi, he did a video on the Facebook release process where he says every major feature that's coming out in the next six months in Facebook is already in production. You just can't see it yet. Right. So they're testing it. They're running it. You know, that's internally. why that app is so slow. <laughs> <laughs> you just nailed it. <laughs> well, there's a funny story about that because what, what happened is they have this piece of software called Gatekeeper, which controls who can see what features. Um, and at, at one point, there, there was a bug in it and all the feature toggles went on. Oh, no. And so everyone in the world could see everything in Facebook that was going to be released, and the thing grounds to a halt. Oh, and it was one at little bullion can ruin your whole day. <laughs> and, and so, one bit. <laughs> one bit is all it takes, kids. There's a one where there should have been a zero. And, and, and they discovered at this point that there was no off switch for Facebook. So they were like, turn it off. And they're like, we can't turn it off. What's it off? <laughs> you know, gigs and terabytes of data. One bit. That's all it takes to it, bring it down. And it was a day before they managed to get, get it all fixed. Wow. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 the lesson of that story is these things that you build in your organization, those are products too. Yeah. <laughs> and you need to treat them the same way you treat the other stuff you build for public consumption. But you, and he, as a guy who's done an awful lot of large-scale website work, uh, I... I'm totally disenchanted with load tests these days. I keep getting asked, can we load test the site? I'm like, yeah, I can compare version one to version two just fine. But if you want to answer the hard question, will we survive Saturday? And that's a really hard thing to test. So the idea that I could start incrementally rolling out new features and benchmarking them in the live site and turning them off if they cause a problem, but otherwise getting real numbers behind it that I know this is how this runs. The user can't see it, but we're getting the data on it. That, to me, is a big deal. That's basically doing testing in production. Absolutely. And th- another good story from Facebook, when they... I don't know why I've got these stories from Facebook. I, I guess they talk about this stuff a lot. Sure. Um, so when they released Facebook Chat, they, d- they did this thing called Dark Launching, where the back end was written in Erlang. They released that. They mm-hmm. had some JavaScripts at the front end, which didn't render the chat widget. So it's totally invisible to the user, but it it started sending messages. It pretended that you were chatting. Were chatting. And so they load tested the backend system by having this JavaScript, which would send all these messages uh, and then release, uh, which, you know, different from deployment again, just to nail that point in, is uh, switching the JavaScript to the JavaScript that actually renders the chat widget. Right. And then rollback was replacing it with the JavaScript that sent messages instead. So that was a great example of that, you know, dark launching, testing in production, mm-hmm. getting real node numbers. And I think, you know, the, that, that thing that you talk about, um, that there's there's two aspects of it. One is trying to do clever things like dark launching. The yeah. other element is making your systems resilient, having ways to actually deal with those kind of spikes. high load moments. Yeah. Right, and, and so feature toggles are one of the answers to how do we build systems that are resilient. You know, given the choice between this thing is going to be on or it's going to be off, or we're going to be able to reduce quality of service and not right. offer the same things, but most of it is still going to be working. Most people would choose option B. Yeah. And, and so actually trying to build that in as an architectural concern is really important. Yeah, to degrade gracefully. Right. I was dealing with a customer that wanted a recommendation engine added, which turned out to be really computationally intensive. And so you either drop the system to its knees or you don't do it. And so it took time being able to shut that off and on without rolling back. Right. I, I don't know any ops people in the world that are willing to roll back. Right. It's actually going back to a previous version of, of the app is a nightmare. 
Yeah, it's it's really hard and it's risky because people it's like restore. Yeah, right? everyone backs up, no one restores. No one's restored. and it's the same thing. And you know? everyone everyone rolls forward and say, like, "Have you have you got a have you got a process for rollback?" Oh, you've got a process. You probably don't want to use it. Yeah, you, so- <laughs> you wouldn't want to actually do that. But yeah, we have a process. Yeah, and and everyone always does emergency patches instead. We're not rolling back. We're just supplying some emergency patches. Right. You know. Well, and I like the idea of rolling forward, but I also like this idea of incrementally testing this stuff over time. If you integrate all the time then at least you know the stuff runs together. So when you're feature toggling, do you typically put those bits in a config file somewhere or do you have them you know, on some server somewhere where you can just flip a bit? How do you typically do that? I, you can do something super dumb and just have a file on the file system, like a properties file or something like that. And you know, that, that's the first thing that most people do, which is totally fine. Um, you, know, you can do it at deploy time or you can do it at runtime. So you've had people do stuff at deploy time where they switch stuff on and off. I mean... Yeah, you know, we've had people with gnarly old systems where it's hard to implement. Do it at build time, mm. so you know you, you you actually control what stuff is included at build time. So if you're doing dependency injection, you might have that configuration done sure. at, at build time. Um, you know, people like Facebook who are really good at this, they actually have a system. It's done dynamically. They have a web service. Well, that's that seems like it, it'd be a way to go to me. If, you know, especially if you want to turn certain servers on and certain servers off to, as Richard was saying, do load testing kind of thing in, in the field. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Then Just you're turn it on to one server first and see what happens, and then if that survives, you can start rolling them all up. Yeah. Exactly. And and then you're probably in the domain of doing that, or you know, if you wanted to get all fancy, you might do something with Active Directory or you know whatever. So yeah, it sounds like an operations dashboard almost that you could. Because there's also things you want to warn ops about. I've I've ended up having you know a row of green lights. Of yeah, this piece works and this piece works, so just so they're able to have a sense of what the app thinks is broken or not broken. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's another thing that developers need to be worrying about is you know how is this actually going to be monitored in production, and, mm-hmm. and, and what are the operations people are going to have as their tools to to manage this thing? You know, without having to actually go and turn things on and off, you know, by by shutting down servers or yeah. Re- load balances. I or- test my systems by randomly rebooting things. Is that how we're going <laughs> to? S- I'm diagnosing stuff by hitting power buttons. <laughs> yeah, that that would never work. happen. <laughs> Yeah, it's a. I have been the senior dev during a firefight, you know, on a weekend, busy e-commerce site, and it's failing, and you're so blind, you know. It turns out watching the hard drive light on the server not a good gauge of performance. (laughs) Like, doesn't tell you a lot. Yeah, and there's this thing about, uh, you know actually having situational awareness right yeah. how do we create situational awareness and uh, i was talking to uh, mark burgess the guy who wrote cf engine who lives in oslo mm-hmm. uh, so i kind of uh, met up with him yesterday and this is a this is a big thing that he talks about you know you, we've got monitoring but you know cpu usage i mean th- these numbers on their own tell you nothing no. cpu usage could be zero because there's no load or it could be because there's a deadlock yeah, and all the users are hitting the system and nothing's getting through. Yeah, so you know th- you need to actually have high level business level metrics which tell you whether people are actually able to do the things that that they want to do. Not is the CPU zero on this box? That that's meaningless. What's one of the biggest mistakes people make when they're doing continuous delivery? Oh, that's a good one. Um, uh, my my experience is not that people make mistakes; it's that people find themselves in a system that is not conducive to it. Um, So I guess the mistakes people make is... Inappropriate architecture or something. Right, inappropriate architectures. Inability to get production-like environments for testing in. um, Having architectures that make it really hard uh, to to actually do continuous integration on trunk. um, To be able to... you know, If you have to integrate 20 different services in order to be able to do any kind of acceptance testing, 
that's an architectural problem right um so or, or just organizational issues you know like well guess what operations is run by a different company or operations is run by a different division in a different country yeah and uh so, so you said you want to talk to those guys outside of the control of the developer then in that case right you know and yeah. it's it's not that it's not that people are stupid or evil it's that we create organizations where people don't get feedback on what they're doing so they don't know they're doing something that's awful mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. pe- these the our organizations abstract people away from the consequences of their actions and so they don't get feedback you know developers aren't they don't they're not dumb they don't want to write software that we don't have these monitoring stuff in place for it's just that they never have to run it so they never see what it's like to try and run this software well, so it's a certain old thing that we come back to that 50 percent at least of being an agile company is the company itself and the culture and the, the setup and the way that the company is organized Absolutely. totally beyond the control of the developer right yeah. uh, but you know one thing i will say is that there are things you can do that, you know as a developer it's you know it's easy to be like okay well i'm in a horrible organization there's nothing i can do about it so i'm going to clock in at nine and clock out at five and write my code and be mm-hmm. done with it and you know that that's a natural reaction and it's understandable mm-hmm. but there are things you can do to change culture i mean uh you know when I when I do these things, I always ask where the DBAs are in the audience, and the DBAs never come. And the reason the DBAs don't come is because they hate us. <laughs> Why? <And> rightly so. <laughs> Have you seen what you people are up to? <laughs> we're, we're, we always want f- complete access to the database. We don't need any security. Come on, right? And you know, we, we'll we'll add a few joins to this uh, this query, and then... just a few four, five, seven, yeah. nine, no. twelve, thirteen, fourteen joins. That's okay. That's not going to affect the performance of the system. You know, we don't need to re-index any tables for that. That's fine. So you know, there's simple things you can do. Like go and buy lunch for the DBAs and find out why they hate you. You know, uh, ask the operations pizza as people. a universal lubricant. Totally, uh, you know, <laughs> it's an old theme. Isn't yeah. it? <laughs> or go, take the ops people out for a bit. Ask the ops people to to come out for a drink with you on release night. You know, you go the developers release, they go out and party. The operations yeah. people have to fix that thing at two a.m. It breaks. <laughs> all right, and they they call the developers and like you need to come in. And the developers are like oh, I'm a bit drunk. Well, I can't have a right. That's right. And you know the ops people are really really upset. Why are they upset? Is not- you didn't invite them to your party. Exactly. Well, also that you had a party before you were actually done. Right. And that's the real thing. Yeah, because the ops people couldn't come even if you invited them, right? Yeah, because they're still actually doing the job. <laughs> right. Like, that's the stupid part. You're already partying. We haven't deployed the software. Like right. that's a pretty fundamental mistake. Party when we're done. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so things like that, you know, having lunch and learns, uh, you know, having blogging, you know, all these things can, can change. But what about architecture of the software in general? I mean, is it really, does it always come down to, you know, the simple things like the dry principle and separation of concerns? I mean, those are the things that are going to bite in the butt when you're doing any kind of agile development. But is there anything in particular architecturally that's going to hinder you in uh, continuous development? Yeah, I think people have to realize that testability and deployability are architectural uh, themes that you have to care about. You know, if you can't run tests for your system on a developer workstation, that's a problem. You know, we need to be able to do acceptance testing. You know, if I have to stand up an enormous environment to run acceptance tests, and that's the only way I can do it, and I have to use some insanely expensive tool that we're not going to pay for all the developers to have, that our app is not testable and we can't get fast feedback on whether what we're doing is is, is broken or not because you know, the developer is doing what they can to make sure that it's working sure. but if they have to wait days to get feedback on whether it really actually works 
you can't do it. You know, developers, anytime there's a breakage, uh, you know, anytime they check in a change, they should, acceptance test should be run. If one of them breaks, they should get an email. Here's the problem. Here's a build. Press this button and it will run on your development environment so you can reproduce the bug. Well, now you're really talking about automated testing too. Yes, absolutely. It's not just somebody working through a script. No, no. But yeah, I mean, so this is the key uh, pattern in continuous delivery is this concept of a deployment pipeline. Right. And the deployment pipeline says uh, it's an extension of continuous integration. So we're not happy if the software just builds. That's not enough. You're not going to release something to production that's just been built, that compiles. You're going to have unit tests run. You're going to have acceptance tests, end-to-end tests that run in a production-like environment. Those are going to run. We're going to do performance testing. We're going to do security, penetration testing, these kinds of things. Automate as much of that as you can. And not just so that we can get fast feedback, but also so our testers, who are expensive human beings with imaginations, can spend their time doing exploratory testing and usability testing. Right, not, not the mundane stuff that scripts can do. Right, you know, this is 2013. We shouldn't have human <laughs> beings doing regression testing. It's right. absurd. You know, Neil Ford has a joke, when the computers are doing things that the humans could be doing instead, uh, sorry, when the, <laughs> when the humans are doing things that the computers could be doing instead, the computers get together late at night and laugh at us. And, you know... <laughs> Nowhere is that more true than regression testing. Human beings should not be doing regression testing. This is 2013. The tools and patterns and practices exist to do this. Yes, it's hard. We went into engineering to do hard things, right? We didn't, we didn't go to become engineers so we could moan about how difficult everything is. I kind of think you think feel the same way about the build process, too, because I've met plenty of organizations that fear the build. Yeah. There's one guy who knows how to do it. Oh. He has to sacrifice the chicken every time. You know, It's all in how the blood is splattered on the server to be successful, right? Like... <laughs> And, and then they have this whole conversation when they get a bad build, and the outcome is, be more careful next time. Ha! Like, that's how we're going to make our build better? Yes, that, that's, that's not actionable. <laughs> no. You well, know, I, I like the idea of build is trivial. Like, yes. build is so simple, you build by accident. I, so what I, what I say is, you know, it should be boring. Yeah. We want builds to be boring. We want deployment to be boring. We want release to be boring. I do not want to be excited about the release because excited means that I was up at two o'clock in the morning. Yes. And now I have emotional problems. So, you know, I, I, I want to be bored. I want it, it to be push button to be able to do it in the middle of the day during peak hours and for everyone to be like, and oh. nobody's surprised. Right. You know, so that's what we should be aiming for. Absolutely. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, the, this thing about one person being the, the magic person who knows how yeah. to do it, that's no way to run a company. No I magic mean, people, please. No magic people. <laughs> hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to decouple my trunk from my branches. Nice. <laughs> a little pruning, I think. Uh, always Pruning is always a good idea. Uh, I think we just sent Jez over the edge with that one. <laughs> No, it's time to announce the winner of a DevCraft Complete Collection from Telerik to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I do that, I want to tell you about Team Pulse, which is Telerik's agile project management solution. Team Pulse comes with a rich set of features for data intelligence, capturing of stakeholder feedback, as well as complete tracking of work items. Team Pulse can easily be added on top of any TFS environment including TFS versions 2008, 2010, and 2012. The tool even comes with a TFS wizard that will allow non-technical users to set the whole thing up in seconds. Whoa! So, if you want to improve the way you work, try Telerik Team Pulse now at bit.ly slash teampulse for TFS, or just go to telerik.com and click on Team Pulse. And... So who's our winner? Our winner today is Richard Astbury... Golf clap for Richard Asbury. Nice work. 
It's more of an obnoxious clap. That's an obnoxious, uh, but an obnoxious, obnoxious clap for Richard Asbury. And uh, he wins a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. That's everything Telerik does in one package. Fantastic product. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. It's easy. It just takes a few seconds. We have thousands of members. We give away one of these $2,000 value products every show. And every December, we're going to give away $5,000 of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. We like to ask our guests, Jez, if you had five grand to spend on technology, what would you buy? Go. Ah, um, I would probably, I, I'm sorry to say that I'm uh, a big Apple uh, fanboy. And, and they so just released a whole bunch of new gear. They certainly have. That new Mac Pro is gorgeous. It's pretty super. It's the tube. It's it's cylinder shaped. I know. It's you know. I, I remember when they did the cube and it was it overheated and blew up. And that right, was the transparent cube, which yeah. you thought would have been run cooler than that. So now yes. they're shipped. They're moving into different shapes. Right. It's 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 got uh, it's, it's empty in the middle of the cylinder. So right. presumably airflow will uh, you know. You'll be able to warm your hands over your Mac Pro. <laughs> right. Next year they're going to come out with the triangle, <laughs> <laughs> the pyramid shape, which is going to be great for my four year old. You know, I'm going to teach her you know shapes That's using it. using Macintosh using uh, Maxes right. one right beside the other. That's going to be expensive. It's an opulent uh, decision there. <laughs> You're giving me five grand. That's where, where you go. And you can easily blow it on a Mac Pro. If you load it all the way up, that money's gone. Yeah, plus, plus the Thunderbolt retina display. That, yes. You know, the, oh, yeah. For. What did it drive? Three 4K displays? Three 4K displays. Uh, that, Who that, can afford three 4K displays? <laughs> five, five grand ain't going to cut it. No way. <laughs> <laughs> yep. mm, got me thinking now. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's 2560 by 1600 is just not enough. No, I want 4096. Yeah, so I'm holding off till that comes out. I'll take the five grand and I'll wait till the Thunderbolt Retina comes out. Mm -hmm. uh, Awesome resolution. Really, really, really small text. Really small. I know. I I ran across a guy who was using a MacBook uh, with the Retina display at native resolution with Studio, and he could have opened three code windows side by side. But how he read it, I do not know. That's a young man's game. That's a young, yeah. My eyes are not that good anymore. You gotta get one of those magnifiers the old people hold in front of their books, you know, and just move it around like <laughs> yeah, this. Exactly. It's a really simple and cheap add-on that can actually make the whole thing work for you. So it's like Windows 95 with the magnify. That's right. Uh, yeah, except you get a real magnifying glass. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at, look at that. <laughs> oh, man. They should have something that actually follows your eyes. That's what you want, the connect thing. It'll follow your eyes and actually put the magnifier above it. No worries. So you can actually see all the code. I'm, I'm painting that tomorrow, by the way. That, that would be working great. That's a good idea. Awesome. Uh, I mean, you're a thought worker, and largely this whole DevOps discussion comes from the open source world. Do you have, interact with Microsoft tools very much? How much of continuous delivery is really usable with the Microsoft stack? Uh, well, you know... Uh, I was using, uh, <laughs> I never touched Microsoft stuff before I joined ThoughtWorks, and I joined ThoughtWorks as a Java developer, and mm-hmm. in true ThoughtWorks fashion, the first thing they did is put me on a .NET project. I love where, it. Uh, <laughs> 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 so I was doing uh, .NET uh, 2.0 WinForms, as we were talking about earlier, yep. um, back in 2006, I guess, .NET 2.0, uh, and, and, and so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with that stack. I mean, I was using Visual Studio, I was using ReSharper, uh, which was a super tool, um, you know, so so I mean, you can do it. We, mm-hmm. we, 
uh, and in fact, there's a video on Thorwork Studios website of, um, one of our guys who's, who's put together a, a continuous delivery stack with, you know, NuGet and TFS and these things. So you can do it. I think, you know, I've spoken to a bunch of people in, uh, the Visual Studio team. Uh, Scott Densmore is a guy there who's done, doing a lot of cool work. Uh, so they're very into this stuff. Uh, I know they have a deployment pipeline for Visual Studio. Um, they've done, they're, they're very into this whole thing mm -hmm. and, and they're definitely working towards that. Um, it's not something that thought uh, that, um, uh, Microsoft was great at two years ago, but no. they, they were definitely thinking about it. And I think there's been a lot of progress. Well, I think a lot of the story that we saw coming out of the studio 2012 launch in the fall talked about continuous delivery. Yeah. It's starting to show the pieces, but it, it strikes to me that this is also less about the tools and more about a, a bunch of processes of just how you actually approach development. Yeah. Process patterns, practices, culture, mm -hmm. you know, the, these are the main things. But, you know, I mean, this is the typical story of Microsoft where they're doing this stuff internally. Right. You know, and they, they're doing it, but the tools they're giving other people to do it, you know, then they're, they're not quite there yet. And you're like, for God's sake, open source <laughs> this stuff, get it out there so that other people do the things that you're doing, you know. So Microsoft is doing continuous delivery. Yeah. I mean, as yeah. far as I know, the Visual Studio guys Visual are pretty Studio. advanced. Yeah. Well, this is how they're able to ship a, a, a patch, an update to Studio every quarter now. Right. I mean, that's pretty darn fast. I, I'm also wondering if it's too fast for the customer. The yeah. Customer's struggling with what? More new bits? What? Already? Yeah. What? And, you well, know, but at least, at least they just integrate. You know, we don't have to go get them on a blog post somewhere. You know, they, they well, just happen. I mean, it's great. And this is the important thing, right? Which is that, you know, you don't want to give users, you know, at the risk of, you know, sounding a bit NSA, you don't want to give the users the choice of whether they, they should do it. And this is something that happened with the, with the iPhone, right? Where, you know, you would have to update the apps manually. Right. Who does that? Yeah, so they just don't. Right. So, so iPhone 7, finally, in version 7 of iOS, they make it so it updates automatically. Because, like, you're giving the user a choice, but the user has no information to make that decision. So what yeah. you're saying is, do you want to do it? And you're thinking... What, do I? Uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah. am uh, I qualified so to make that decision? Right. So I'm probably not going to do it because what, what you're saying, giving me the choice is something might go wrong with this. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want that to happen. And, and, you, and you chose it. So it's your, your fault. fault. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of like going to the mechanic and they say, you're going to drive like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're going to so, drive without fixing that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, gentle form of extortion. And, and, you know, so I think. Make it, make it automatic. Now, at this point, anyone who's a sysadmin of a big company is going to have, you uh, know. <laughs> so if you're actually responsible for people being productive, right. having software that randomly updates itself is terrifying. Right. And, and, and the reason for that is people have been bad at that in the past. And this yeah. is one of the things you have to do as a, as a, someone building the system. Again, architectural concern. You have got to make that upgrade process bulletproof and yeah. automatic and invisible. And if it doesn't work, it silently reverts back to the old right. way of doing it and you never find and out. iOS 7 just came out, right? Just came out. Yeah, that's the new version of Windows Phone OS. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, you know, Apparently it looks a lot like Windows Phone. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. fabulous. But that, you mean, we, we're what is it, Wednesday? I think the keynote was Monday. So it's been two days. I think people are generally freaking out. It's clearly the biggest change in iOS yep. since it came out. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so the... Uh, the pundits are all over the map. Yeah. Some people are really hating it. Yeah. Anytime you change things, you know, uh, people are against well, that. That's validation for Microsoft. You know, they actually had some good design ideas. It, it was very nice. You know, I think, I mean, and this is the problem with Microsoft. There's smart people at Microsoft who are very good at this stuff and they want to do it. And then they're, they're saddled with all these users. You know, there's, uh, Mark Twain says, uh, you know, I'm all for progress. It's change I object to. <laughs> The IT mantra is change is good, you go first. Yes. 
Because the consequences of failure are always so high. Right. And, and this comes back to our talk earlier about making making systems resilient so right. that if things go wrong, it's like it's it's not a problem. We know that. I mean, when you're dealing with complex dynamic systems, mm-hmm. failure is not an exceptional condition. It's just a particular configuration space of the system. Right. Right. So we have failure is normal. And, and so we have to build a system so that we can deal with that. I also think if we're doing builds all the time or pushing bytes out to the customer routinely, uh, all that stuff has to work. It, like you just get good at making it work all the time. Yeah. And that, that's what we're doing. Again, we're creating pain right. so that people actually fix this to expose the inefficiency in the problem so that we go and fix them. So. Right. And we're, yeah, your testing's got to be right so that you're catching stuff before it makes it all the way to deployment. Exactly. I mean, so the deployment pipeline was modeled not on an oil pipeline, on a CPU pipeline. So CPUs, there's a pipeline where you decode instructions, then you actually do what the instructions tell you to. Right. And, and they, they fetch a bunch of memory and they ex, and they decode all that stuff on the assumption that they're not going to jump somewhere that they haven't got in cache. Right. So, uh, and then if, if you do that jump, then you have to wipe out the whole cache. You lose milliseconds trying to get that stuff from main memory and decode it and then put mm-hmm. it back in the CPU pipeline. So the deployment pipeline is the same thing. We assume that your check-in is good. Yep. And we're going to try and take that all the way to production on the assumption that's deployable. But then we're going to find out maybe at some point that what you did affects performance. Right. And then we're going to have to dump the whole pipeline and wait for someone to fix that and check in. And then again, but we work on the assumption that developers know what they're doing and that they've taken appropriate steps and, and then that what they're going to do is going to work. But we mean, fundamentally, we already have this cycle. It's just that normally it's six weeks or right. three months or six months. Right. All you're doing is saying go faster. Go faster. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a slide in my, in my talk this afternoon where I have a video, uh, you know, from a children's program that was popular in the UK, Magic mm-hmm. Roundabout, and it says, work in small batches in right. flashing lights. <laughs> you know, if there's one thing that I can, you know, hypnotize you and implant yeah. in your memory, whatever you're doing, work in small batches. Work in small batches. Development, budgeting, organizational Bourbon. change, deployment, retrospectives. Bourbon. Bourbon, scotch, yeah. <laughs> small batches better. Absolutely, beer. Yeah. Small batches better. It applies everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and just taking those small bites, so you can also get it back too. Right. It's not that hard to change it. Exactly. It's easy to change. You get feedback faster. You can actually remember what you were working on. Yeah, I've I've come to appreciate that the number of minutes between your check in and your bug report directly affect how many minutes it's going to take to fix it. Right. If the number of minutes exceeds say two hundred. Anybody might as well fix it because you have no idea what right. it is anymore. It's gone. Yeah. After I mean, a couple of hours, gone. Yeah. You know, you get a bug. I can barely remember what I was doing last week. You know, <laughs> so you get a bug report from two weeks ago. My God, that's useless. Yeah. I mean, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. But if you can get it back to him in a few minutes, you have a chance that he can pick those threads back up and, and get things fixed quickly. Absolutely. I mean, I, I had a colleague uh, who was actually one of the most brilliant developers I've ever known. Uh, and he had a very reckless uh, teenage years where he went to lots of discos and mm-hmm. took lots of uh, naughty pills. And he, he loved tester and development because he said, you know, TDD, you only have to remember one of, two, one of two things. You're either writing the test or you're making the test pass. Right. Right. So you don't have to remember any of what you were doing for the last five hours. It's just like, okay, I've lost my entire short term memory. What was I doing? <laughs> oh, I was writing a test. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other part of continuous delivery then has to be the feedback mechanism from production. Yes. Like that to me, if you're going to get the whole package in here, is the hard part. Because we're pretty good at getting all the way to production. But how do you, if there are, so, so I am continuously, I'm not forking, I'm staying on the trunk, I'm continuously integrating this code that's not visible to the user yet. But how do we capture that information 
on how it's running in production, what harm it may be causing, right. so that we can actually get better. Right, and, and also what value it's creating. So right. the, the big elephant in the room for me about the whole software delivery thing mm -hmm. is the fact that we spend all this time building stuff before we ship it. Right. Because... You know, we have this thing about requirements, right? This term requirements, it sounds very professional. Yes. You know, and what it is, is some highly paid person comes off the golf course and says, wouldn't it be nice to do this? And then someone kind of writes this up into a really big document and it takes a long time to do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what they have is a guess about what users may find valuable. Right. And, it, you know, whose requirements are they? They're the requirement of our, you know, golf course playing executive. Yeah. Right. They're not the requirements of the user. Users don't know what they want. Users know what they don't want once you've built it for them. Yes. So. Oh, that is. That's a great quote. So it's not mine. It comes from a, from Mike Orson and Steve Bell's Lean IT book. It's a fabulous book. Um, and so we have guesses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, guesses sounds bad. It sounds like you shouldn't be paid all that money. So there's a more, you know, serious word for that, which is hypotheses. Ah. Every time we come up with a product idea or a feature idea, what we have is a hypothesis. And what we want to do is test that hypothesis, find out if it's actually going to be valuable to our users. Right. The most expensive way to test that hypothesis is to actually go and build that stuff. And see right. what goes wrong and right. figure and it out. Exactly. So what we, sh I mean, this whole thing in the lean startup is, well, there's cheaper ways to do this and we should apply the scientific method. I mean, the lean startup sounds very trendy and hipster. It's just the scientific method. Right. You know, as Eric Reese will tell you. But and it's, it's, yeah, the difference is that it's with a cost factored in. Right. You know, typically when we're talking about scientific method, we're getting funding, like the, there's a less sensitivity to cost there. Right. Once you've got any kind of funding, it's probably more than you need. But right. I, I get your idea here that, if we can reduce the cost of development, because there is an advantage to testing in the field like that. It's the most realistic test you could possibly do. Absolutely. And you don't need to run it on everyone. We're not saying, you know, no. re release this experiment to your 10 million users. No, you know, do what Facebook does. Release it to a small number of people. Yeah. Do, who what, are friendly, who are keen to those new features. Right. You know, and, 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 and design an experiment, which is not the entire feature. Right. Find some way to test it in a really dumb, cheap way. And also, I think, to expect it to fail. Yeah. And ask the five whys of, you know... You know, the, the ask why five times like the Toyota way. Right. And find out what happened and, and what we can do to make it better. Because, because you, you, that's how you iterate and learn. Absolutely. And, and you're quite right. I mean, th this is the key point. We expect to go wrong. One in 20 startups actually succeeds. 19 out of 20 fail. Right. And, and this is true in enterprises as well. It's just that we're much better at covering it up. Yes. So we, you know, we have find we find ways to not call it a failure. Right. Hey, it happens in government too. <laughs> I can't just believe saying. that. <laughs> So, so you know, th th this is what we need to be doing in our, in our organizations, working out to run experiments cheaply, and then we can run a lot more of them. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of, you know, this is what I say about portfolio management. I've got a product I want to sell for your 401k. The product is I'm going to invest in four things that have a really high cost base, and it's going to take a really long time to work out if there's going to be a return on investment. Ooh, sounds good. Would you like up. to put your money into that? <laughs> That's what we're doing with our IT budget. Sure. It's nuts. You know, we should be have a portfolio of loads of different experiments that are very cheap to run. Mm -hmm. You know, three months for 10 people, tops. And we expect the most of them fail. One of them will have a very high upside. Yeah. Uh, and we'll make a ton of money off it. You know, optionality, a 2,000-year-old way of managing risk. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we using it? Well, yeah, and again, get back to this real feedback mechanism and real measurements. Like, what does success actually look like what's the relevant measure how we know if our users are actually finding it valuable yeah. measuring the value you know we're great at measuring the cost yes you know but doug hubbard has this book how to measure anything and what he says is the cost of the developing the feature actually has a really low information value yes what has a high information value is will the project get cancelled hmm. and 
how long will it take for people to adopt it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the value. And the that's hard value. to measure. So we, we don't measure that because that's too hard. We're going to yeah. measure cost instead. But yeah, adoption is not that hard to measure, actually. If you put your mind to it. Yeah. And it's an incredibly valid, a rapid, you know, being able to compare adoption rates across different versions or different products says a lot. You see an app, you see a version of that app that gets rapidly adopted. You may not know why, but at least you know, okay, well, something good happened there. It's good to go scrutinize that one. Right. And that's, that's actually advanced class for a lot of product owners. I mean, this is one of my problems with Scrum and a lot of these processes is that there's no focus on how do we measure the value of what we created, right. which, which is my answer to your question about you know, feedback from production. That's how we measure the value of what we created. And again, continuous deployment. You know, the, the thing is, we don't know why. Why don't you know why? It's because you released every three months and you don't know which of those features people actually found valuable. So if you're releasing more frequently, then you can actually do, you know, causal analysis. Real A-B testing. Right. This this is better than that. Right. And And you know know which thing it was that people actually wanted to pay money for. That's it. Yeah. If you're releasing every three months, you've built this huge package of changes because it takes time to get all those things together. And why were you waiting three months in the first place? You're just afraid to deploy? Right. It's because it's the magic dude who knows how to deploy. This is one guy and that's the only time he's in. Right, you know, and, and he and he only fought so many chickens. Right, <laughs> yeah, ch- chickens are becoming scarcer these it's days. Expensive. You know, with, uh, yeah, you really want me to sacrifice a chicken every day? Is <laughs> yeah. that where we're going? You know, Plus, and, and, uh, we're spending way too much money on handy wipes. So, <laughs> oh man, uh, and also, you know, if, if you spend the whole weekend in the data center doing a release, yeah, and you know, Jess Humble rocks up and says you should release all the time, you're going to be like, you are insane. Yeah. Go away. Yeah, go away. <laughs> I'd like a weekend again, please. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, you know, wh- one of the big things that I'm very clear to point out is that if you're doing it right, you're not spending the weekend in the data no. center. The weekend is a failure. Yeah. I, that, I think that's the bigger thing. It's just recognizing that these things shouldn't be happening. No, we should, we should have our lives back. Yeah. Continuous delivery is about making sure that we are productive and we are happy and we're spending our time at work actually delivering stuff that's useful and we're not in particular in crunch time i mean crunch time is a function of the waterfall process right where you thought you were fine i mean it's like you installed windows right oh so you, yeah many you things. install windows and there's a progress bar and it gets to 80 percent, and then it stops moving oh yeah of course right but it's still moving it's but, still at 80 percent right, right yeah and so you go and make a cup of tea or coffee and then you come back and it's still at 80 percent, and you're like well should i make an should i make lunch or should i reboot you know what should i do and and so this is what project management's like right. you know you, you're getting there you're making progress you get to 80 percent, then you start doing load testing 10 seconds left for five hours <laughs> right yeah right and so you know so this is what happens on projects you get to 80 percent. have you done. ever taken that slider up from 80 percent and then moved it back down to 60 percent? that makes people really angry when you do that <laughs> <laughs> right and, and so our architecture wasn't done after all no. because it doesn't support well, that, our load. Yeah, and, you, and, and I'm speaking to the truth here. You do the load testing and realize it's wrong, and you really do need to push that progress bar back. Absolutely. You weren't 80% done. Yeah, we were wrong. Yeah. And, and you're right. That, that makes VPs very know. angry. You already, I already told people we're 80%. Now I have to tell them, okay, not really. Right. And, and that's the root cause of people working insane hours. Mm-hmm. And, and, and generally speaking, covering stuff up. I've also found, especially around metrics, I found whole organizations perfectly willing to see, deceive themselves on metrics. They want numbers that sound good, not m- numbers that are actually actionable. Right. Right. Like I need to give people good news about the project. Ooh, we've got a hundred million users. Okay. That's good news. <laughs> right. Yeah. What Eric Reese calls vanity metrics. Vanity metrics. So that, that's what they really are, right? Is everybody wants to be able to spread good news at every level of the company. Like they're willing to deceive themselves. Yeah. Uh, or r- rather, you know, talk about numbers that aren't actually meaningful. But I also find that real metrics, bloody hard to get. Like actually figuring out what's a, 
what's a good speedometer for a given company? Are we doing better this week than last week? That's not an easy thing to figure out. That's why you need to hire some math guys. Big data, apparently, is the solution to these problems. But also, yeah. I think, you know, th- this is one of the things, work in small batches. Right. If you work in small batches, it's much easier to get, you know, you don't need absolute numbers. You need, a lot of the time, deltas. Right. And if you release Small batches let you create more deltas. Right, exactly. And then, then you get more rich information. Mm-hmm. And, and then you get it earlier as well, which is right. the other important thing. Because bad news a week into the project is much better than bad news a week before the end of the project. Yes. You know, because, again, uh, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, now, now it's too late. You're overcommitted. Everybody's in. You know, right. we're, we're going to make this appear to work one way or the other. Right. And then, then you're into the sunk cost fallacy and, and all yeah. these kind of horrible psychological disasters. Well, and I also appreciate like you just threw the big data thing out there. One of the tactics you deal with is we come up with the big new thing to cover up the failure that's going to take so long we're all going to forget about the failure. Right. Right. Like big data is awesome for that. Six-month project. Data warehousing. Another six-month project. Right. right? They, or we should be converting to Ruby on Rails. Like, that, that'll fix it, right? But it's a big enough goal right. that now we have an excuse for, well, we told you it takes six months. Like, yeah. Goodbye. You know, it's just not actually constructive behavior. It's, it's organizational dysfunction. Right. And, and it's, I, I feel like it's about fear of failure. Because if you go, the problem with small batches, it allows you to fail quickly. Right, and cheaply. And expectedly. Yep. We're, we're going to run some experiments. Our experiments will fail. That will give us knowledge. Yeah, and, and talking about failed experiments is kind of bad as well, right? Yeah, a failed well, experiment is one that doesn't give you statistically significant information. Yes, uh, I, but then you get back to Edison's thing of I know a thousand ways not to make a light bulb, right? Like right. that failure does accumulate useful knowledge. I just think that we have this epidemic in in large corporate culture where you can't say the word fail ever, and it's just that whole idea that there would be any kind of failure of any kind just. They're terrified of it. So, well, they're stockholders. They don't want. They don't want them to hear that word. Yeah, and uh, the irony of that is, right? As a stockholder, you should know basic maths means high return means high risk. Right. Right. And so, if you want to make a lot of money, you're going to have to take some risk. If you want boringly predictable, then sure, we can invest your money in, you know, a unit trust, and you'll get a steady one percent return on that. Would yeah. you like that, or would you like a large return? Guess what? That's going to involve risk. Yeah. Right. But is there any way to build software that actually has a steady 1% return anyway? Isn't software inherently, in my experience, certainly in the enterprise, is that is large return. When a piece of software works well, it's incredibly valuable. You make like, a ton of money, which is why massive we do it. ROIs. Absolutely. So that by that nature, they are pretty darn risky. There's no sure things here. Right. And so how do you, how do you mitigate that risk? Work in small batches. Right. Fail you know, often. Fail early. Quickly. So that, you know, no one's, uh, you know, reputation is on the line then again how do you walk into a meeting and say i think our problem is that we don't have enough problems you know i think our problem is that we don't fail i think we should fail more and everybody goes (laughs) i mean you know in a in a corporate culture like that how do you begin to change without i mean you can't just come out and you can't just lay that one on the table i mean you have to sort of show the value of failure and i think that people talk about you know I can't remember what the term is, but, you know, wait, wait for things to go really horribly wrong, you know, and for everyone to be like, okay, what we're doing is really bad. Right. And that's the point at which you say, you know, I've got an idea. What if <laughs> right. we could not wait all this time before doing it? What if we yeah. could do it? You know, you've got to wait for something to go horribly wrong. Right. And, and there's loads of companies who've done that. There's a great um, book by Hewlett Packard's, uh, their laser jet firmware team adopted continuous delivery and they put this fabulous deployment pipeline in place, hmm. embedded software. Yeah. Um, firmware, in fact, and mm-hmm. they built this fabulous deployment pipeline. 
where they had automated tests. They had 30,000 hours of automated tests that run on virtual machines that simulated printers. Wow. Actual logic boards. You know, the logic, they had a rack of logic boards that would boot, download the latest version of the firmware from the previous stage in the deployment pipeline, run all 30,000 hours of automated tests. Hmm. I mean, that was pretty serious stuff. Yeah. Um, and when and was that? That must have been a while ago. This was between 2008, 2011. Oh, wow. There's a guy called Gary Groover. Uh, if you look up Groover, G-R-U-V-E-R on Amazon, you'll find his book where he writes it up. Uh, and they, I mean, cool. that they invested a lot, a ton of money in this. This is hard stuff. Anyone mm. who comes to me and says acceptance testing is too hard, I carry this book with me so I can spank them with it. Yeah, right. To prove, you know, well, <laughs> are you trying to do it on firmware, you know, with logic boards? No, well, it's probably not that difficult then. So, <laughs> you know, but this required a ton of investment. And the way sure. they got it is the business was totally desperate. Mm. They tried firing people. They tried outsourcing, tried cutting costs. The business came to them because they were desperate, and that's how they got it. The trick mm. is being able to do this stuff before the business totally messes it up. Yeah. yeah. It's a great talking point. It's like, do I have to wait till we're about to completely disastrously fail to try and make things better, or can we start earlier? Yes. When would you like to do it? We're going to do it sooner or later. It's just a question of how much pain you want to go through before that. Right. Well, Jazz, what's next for you? What are you working on now? I'm working on a new book. Um, which is uh, tentatively supposed to come out late this year, early next year, uh, mm-hmm. Eric Reese's uh, O'Reilly series. Mm-hmm. Um, so that and uh, lots of ranting at people. Uh, awesome. So doing talks and uh, going and helping people implement this stuff. Excellent. Well, thanks for spending this hour with us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for all the great questions. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember... Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, Go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a.